each evening will be speaking at this time about some aspect of uh, metta practice. And the, the aim of the talks is uh, partly to give perspective, partly to give a little bit of information, partly to um, energize, um, and partly to inspire, hopefully. And just to say a word about listening to the talks, um, really to encourage us to listen really through the metadors, so to speak, to uh, let it come through, through your intuition, through that uh, awakened heart. And often there'll be, after a talk, in addition maybe to the energy or uh, the uh, hopefully encouragement, there may be maybe one or two or three insights maybe not even related to the talk, that just come from listening. And those might help to uh, make an adjustment in your practice or to shift in understanding. So just uh, an encouragement in that way. The talks will be available after the retreat for um, a second listening, if you wish. (laughs) So So the theme uh, for tonight that I want to explore is uh, a sense of how metta works when we stay with it, of how metta develops both in retreat and in daily life, the kind of unfolding of metta as a path of practice. And I want to offer some perspectives uh, and bring in two voices that are not uh, physically present. One is uh, the voice of Sylvia Borstein, who's our beloved uh, metta mentor, metta teacher, sometimes characterized as a metta machine. (laughs) And I'll be Uh, Maybe like uh, the others of us here, we'll be bringing in her voice and perspective at different times and really um, offering offering her uh, metta. And the second voice I want to bring in is that of uh, Dr. King. Uh, Interesting timing with our retreat. The first full day of the retreat is Dr. King's uh, 84th birthday, as Larry mentioned this morning. And the last full day, the last, I should say, the last day of the retreat is the public celebration of Dr. King's birthday. It also happens to be the inauguration of Barack Obama for his second term. So interesting timing. (laughs) So I want to bring in uh, those voices. I'm actually going to bring in Barack Obama as well. He he actually has... um, well, you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> so, first a few words about this uh, spirit of metta, of 
really what our meta practice is about most fundamentally. It's really a practice in which we incline towards what we sometimes call the awakened heart or the open and good heart. We incline in that direction. It's really a practice moment by moment of uh, saying, yes, I intend to go in that direction. Sylvia speaks of meta practice as casting a spell of kindness. And yet this uh, intention aspect is very crucial. We're intending to have the heart open, or as I like to say, we're knocking on the door of the awakened heart. And that is a, so the aspect of intention is very crucial. We are not trying to uh, engage in a production process or production practice. We are not saying, I'm not saying, Donald, you will now produce metta. Hmm. You know, it's more we're saying, let me incline in that direction. And then in a sense, I let be whatever happens. That's the nature of an intention practice. We are having, as it were, the good intention. And over time, that good intention bears fruit when we stay with it. But it's not always, as you know, particularly from this first day of practice, it's not a linear process. And it's not always predictable. It has its mysterious aspects as to how the heart uh, opens in a beautiful way. There's a nice line which I like from uh, the four quartets of T.S. Eliot where he says, ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. That's our practice. That's practice in general. We're responsible for the intention and the showing up moment by moment. And then we let happen whatever happens. And that's not always easy, but that's our, that's our practice. And so that aspect of intention is quite beautiful. I wanted to uh, share some expressions of that. Actually, one of our retreatants, uh, Heidi Bourne, uh, told her daughter when her daughter was two, she said, Sarah, choose kindness always. It's much easier that way. That was her teaching of her young one. There's a very similar passage, really uh, bringing out that aspect of intention from Dr. King. He says this, I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. (laughs) For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And so we have this practice that points us in that direction. And it, again, is very beautiful and mysterious. There was a wonderful story that I heard uh, a month or two ago, I think it was, or maybe a little longer, from uh, Leslie Grant, who works with uh, basically elementary school age kids and teaches them mindfulness and metta. And there was uh, a young boy who was in the class 
I think this was, he was, I think five. And in his family, there was quite a lot of violence. And this boy actually hit a lot of the other kids. And when they started Metta, uh, Leslie would ask them, what color is your Metta? And he said, gray. And then he was asked, uh, is there any one or anything you love? And he said, no. A few days later, he said, I think my dog. And they would do metta practice just as we're doing. And the kids would hold beeswax in their hands. And they would know that the metta was working when the beeswax melted in their hands. And one day, this boy came in really excited and he had been doing metta towards his dog. And he said, the beeswax has melted. The metta is working. (laughs) And he stayed with that, you know, and metta really clicked for him and he stopped hitting the, the children. Of course, there were, you know, issues in the family, but something had shifted. And it points to the kind of the power and the spirit uh, of metta. And ultimately, really, the reason that metta works is that our deeper nature is that of love, is that of metta. And we really, even though we may have been taught that by various teachers, we have to know that for ourselves in a way. We have to do the practice and come to know that more and more. That's really what the practice is about. In the teachings of the Buddha, he says that there is in our being what he calls the brightly shining factor of mind and heart. And that it's connected with metta. There's a shining, a luminous quality to our being, a radiant quality that is there. Even, he said, in those who do wrong, who are unethical, he said, even in the most corrupt mind, there is the brightly shining factor of mind. There is that metta. There is something deeper that we can, of course, uh, obscure. And for, for Dr. King, resting in love and that quality of metta was central for him, both as a way of being and as a way to um, as a way to ground efforts at social change, to have it come out of love. He thought that love is our most basic nature, which is the same as Gandhi thought. That the reason that a nonviolent strategy could work is because it goes beneath the conditioning and the hatred and touches something, in their cases, in the oppressor. King says, One who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. 
in November, after the election, President Obama visited Burma. And he gave a speech, which some of you have seen, which of course is available on YouTube. (laughs) No Dharma talk these days. It's complete without at least a few web references. And in that talk, uh, Barack Obama spoke about metta. I wanted to read his words. And he also quoted uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who has, a, who has you know, been really the heart of uh, the hopes for democracy in Burma and does quite a lot of metta practice. This is what uh, President Obama said. I have seen just earlier today the golden stupa of of the Shwedagon, and I've been moved by the timeless idea of metta. Barack Obama, I have been moved by the timeless idea of metta. (laughs) (laughs) The belief that our time on the earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. And then he quoted Aung San Suu Kyi saying, Fear is not the natural state of civilized man. And then Obama said, I believe that. So whatever his contradictions, that's part, that's part, of, his, uh, um, part of his understanding that metta is there. One of the aspects of metta that Sylvia loves to talk about is how metta is often there so powerfully in difficult situations. And this is what she's talked about a lot with the situation in the hospital with her husband, the incredible kindness of so many people. That when there's a crisis and when we are not sort of afraid because of violence, we respond amazingly with, a, with beautiful hearts. That's been shown over and over again, maybe in your own experience as well. And I wanted to read a poem that I just got a little over a week ago from a very dear friend. This is also the spirit of Metta. This is, uh, this is a poem that she wrote Uh, as her mother was dying. This is a poem by uh, Bonnie Morrissey, who lives in Vermont. This is called, The Moon is Not a Sea, is the name of the poem. The moon is not a sea for Christo tonight. No sacrifice is yet required. Rather, the moon is a D for Dios, promising fulfillment, but more she is a cradle tipped down and resting on her back, a bottom, bottom heavy, lit to hold a solstice baby or an old woman dying. Something is arriving. My mother pats the back of my head as I weep on her shoulder. It's okay, she whispers, the dying comforting the living. I've heard that so many times that the dying often 
express different versions of metta. They say thank you, they offer comfort. Blood bond pulses between us as the spaces between her breaths widen. The vigil begins, I listen for each breath through the long night as she once listened for mine. We are birthing into this bright candle of night. My brother points to the North Star, tells how the whole sky revolves. And I see it again as if for the first time, that great timeless whirl of existence. That star is always right there, he assures. How could I not be certain each time I walk out in the dark of what guides and orients where to turn and what step to take towards the light? So for this retreat and hopefully for our lives, uh, metta is our North Star. It's what we orient towards. We keep coming back to that. So I wanna talk further about some of the ways that this uh, orientation to metta as our central practice here, some of the ways that it works. And I wanna talk about a few of these, some of them a little briefly. Um, ways that I've seen in myself and in others uh, of how metta works. The first is that we learn to uh, better lead with our hearts, with our awakened hearts. So this is a training in leading with our hearts. And a training means that a large part of the training is noticing when we're not leading with the heart. (laughs) That's important. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to all this. The second aspect of our training is that we develop further in concentration. The third aspect is that we, we really undergo a process that we might call a process of purification. Purification of body, of mind, of heart. Fourth, that we in a way integrate our hearts as we practice more and more with our minds, with our wisdom, with our bodies. Partly this is where we, as as metta matures, we connect the metta with our wisdom practice, with our mindfulness practice, and we increasingly embody it. It's in our bodies as we've been emphasizing so much this first part of the retreat. And then fifth, we touch in metta practice our depths. As we progress, we touch those radiant depths, that luminous uh, quality of our being, increasingly uh, more and more. And then lastly, we bring this all back to the world. We bring our practice back to the world really uh, as an offering, as a gift, as a practice. So first, this uh, leading with the heart, learning to lead with the awakened heart and this is definitely a training. You know, uh, it's a training on the retreat, it's a training in our lives because many of us were conditioned to lead with other parts of ourselves for better and worse. I think I was trained to lead with my analytic problem solving capabilities. I just, I just channeled some of them. <laughs> channel that spirit, you know, and partly, you know, partly it's related to gender and conditioning. 
even though I always knew I had a, you know, a very kind of a tender heart because I knew I, because I used to cry during Driver Ed movies. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> I mean, my sister is actually way more like this. She used to cry during television commercials, many of them. <laughs> okay. And so I knew that, but uh, the metta practice really has helped to bring that out. A lot of other things in life as well, but metta practice can really be a kind of a, a training. You know, if we are more mental, and the culture is very, very mental, you know, and increasingly mental, virtual, electronic, etc. And that uh, we really need to keep training to stay in our hearts, stay in our bodies, as well, and metta practice is a beautiful training in this. Uh, and again, we train simply by each moment intending to wish well, inviting the heart to be more present with our phrases, with our different aspects of technique, and we do it over and over again. And we see when the heart seems more open. And the first day, admittedly, is hard. So we're still, many of us are still settling. There is sleepiness. There is um, sometimes restlessness. There can be a very active mind and so forth. How many had one or more of some of the qualities I just mentioned? Okay, so it's hard to see the hands that did not go up. <laughs> Uh, and so that's natural, you know, and as we, as we practice more, we, that, you know, that uh, heart quality or the metta feeling tends to surface more, but it's very mysterious, you know. When I did my, my first metta retreat, I actually did it on my own. It was in the days before there were actually metta retreats. It was about a little over 20 years ago. And so I was kind of, I was doing it on my own. I didn't really have great instruction. <laughs> and not so much happened, apparently. And then one morning, it was, it was about seven days on my own. And then kind of on the sixth or seventh day during breakfast, when I wasn't really, I think, saying the phrases during breakfast, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> So whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and it works like that. It's meta is really mysterious, so that we really counsel: just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. It's a mysterious process. It's not linear, and it's hard to know what's happening. And that was a very moving moment, you know, to hear that. And I said, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and Sharon Salzberg, who's now like the meta queen. Uh, on the East Coast, she tells a very similar story where she was doing a retreat, uh, it was quite a ways, I think, before mine, uh, and she was doing it on her own. I don't know if she had good instruction, and she had to cut short her retreat by a few days. It just was maybe four days, and she said not that much seemed to be happening, and then she, she was in a hurry to get somewhere, and she knocked over a vase, and she heard herself say to herself, you klutz. And then the next comment was, you're a klutz, but I love you. (laughs) 
Where did, she say, where did that come from? <laughs> I don't usually say that. So this is how it works. So again, this is really encouragement. Just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. And, uh, and things develop in, in mysterious ways. In that practice, we notice that which stands in the way of metta. We notice all sorts of things that make metta hard. This is actually related to the purification process I'll talk about in a moment. But we notice that, we notice maybe with uh, more clarity when things, when our experience doesn't reflect metta. You know, I was, I was noticing this just a few days ago I was um, coming back from uh, teaching, and I'd actually been teaching metta in Arizona, and um, my uh, flight was delayed, and I was still doing quite a lot of metta. I was really you know, doing metta at the airport quite a bit, and my flight was delayed, and I actually I wasn't able to go home. I had to uh, stay overnight in Phoenix. Um, which I won't talk so much about. Um, and, but I noticed uh, as I was getting tired, as a lot of things were not working out, the metta quality slipped. And I noticed myself being a little bit demanding of some of the people with the airport. I noticed myself uh, just you know, wanting to get what I wanted, right? And I could see it. I could see it maybe more clearly and more quickly because there had, I had been doing a lot of practice. That's what we keep on noticing. We, that's what we can notice at the retreat. We can notice that. You know, and that's, it's incredible to bring that back into daily life where we, where we aspire towards metta and we notice what's not metta. Guy Armstrong likes to use the metaphor, so to speak. <laughs> we, don't, we don't make that joke too often. <laughs> Uh, Guy Armstrong, who's one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, he likes to talk about metta as like um, making um, orange juice concentrate. All that which is not orange juice is left out. <laughs> and we see, we see that with that which is in the way. So we learn to lead with our hearts and increasingly we can even bring that quality of... Uh, metta into difficult situations. Metta isn't about just being nicey-nice. It's really an important point. I've been thinking for a few years about what we can call sort of following the idea of tough love, thinking about tough metta. And, you know, a metta that can be firm, that can set boundaries, but do so with love. Really important quality, kind of difficult quality, you know. At this retreat in Arizona, people were talking about how can you have metta towards scorpions and rattlesnakes? And that's, you know, that's sort of a further steps of the metta practice. We learn to lead with our hearts even when it's difficult. And of course, Dr. King was an incredible exemplar of that, right? Leading with, leading with love even when there were threats on his life, when there was violence and still saying, Metta, her love, is the answer. Quite incredible. You can see that there, this really suggests the second aspect of metta practice, which is that we develop in concentration. And that actually the quality 
in the mind and heart, and really in the body as well, of concentration, of staying in a focused way with our theme of meditation is an important part of this and part of what we develop on this retreat. Starting tomorrow uh, in the instructions tomorrow morning, we'll be bringing the work with the phrases into our walking in a full way. And in fact, we'll be encouraging us to work with the phrases and work with the meta practice all day long. In every moment of the day, really from waking until sleeping. So that our practice will be continually to um, do the practice, to as it were, knock on the door of the heart, moment after moment after moment. It's a challenging practice. We can call that a kind of concentration practice because we are focused with our meditation only, we might say, on one object. We also can do concentration practice, for example, with the breath, where we just stay with the breath. And here we do metta. We just stay with metta practice. We stay with the phrases over and over again during the meals, walking back and forth. We increasingly do that. It's an incredible simplification. One of the beauties of of a concentration practice is that there's incredible simplicity. There's just one thing to do all day long. That can feel like a blessing or it can feel like a curse sometimes, right? Just one thing to do. I want two. (laughs) Uh, But it's a beautiful quality and it can really feel uh, um, quite freeing, really, of that kind of restlessness of the mind because we're just doing one thing. The philosopher Kierkegaard says, purity of heart is to will one thing. So we'll be doing that. We, we may want to use a different word than concentration, which is a translation of samadhi, which really has, I think, a little bit different connotations. It's not so much with will focusing on the object, but it actually has a more relaxed quality. And a better translation, I think, is um, uh, unification of mind and heart. There's a way that we're unified around the, around the practice of metta. I'll talk some about this also tomorrow morning, but the, what this means when we're doing the meta practice, I don't know if it's been said explicitly here, is that we um, practice in a way somewhat different from mindfulness practice in that we don't try to note carefully everything coming through our experience, but rather we stay with the metta and we have thoughts that take us somewhere, we have memories, we have emotions, we have body sensations, we generally let those stay in the background. If they are moderate level or less strong, we let them stay in the background. If something becomes very, very strong, then we attend to it. Strong and lasting for a significant amount of time. Then we would attend to it. If we have, for example, sadness is really pervasive for five minutes, for 10 minutes, then we would attend to it with mindfulness or perhaps with compassion practice. You know. But generally speaking, most of the usual movements of mind and thought and the sensations of body, 
we just let come and go and we keep coming back to the metta. That's really what characterizes a, a concentration practice or a unification of mind practice. And as we do that, we, we acquire some of the benefits of uh, concentration practice, which are that there is a tremendous relaxation of the body. There's a growing uh, calmness. There is a, a steadiness. There can be a sense of uh, stillness and peace. Uh, very interestingly, as we say the phrases more and more, and this can happen very much on this kind of retreat, Sometimes the words uh, move from being what we have to give continual attention to, and they almost become more of the background. And the words become a little bit more automatic, and they're not so much on the discursive level of mind, but they are almost on another level. And we can have sometimes the phrases can keep happening, but we focus maybe increasingly on the heart feeling. Because what we're aiming for with our practice is not to become a great expert with phrases, but the phrases are meant to evoke that sense of warmth or the sense of wishing well. And as that emerges, that's what we really focus our attention on. We keep the phrases going, but sometimes the phrases can happen at a, at a level that's beneath the usual effortful um, conceptual level. We can develop further joy and bliss as the concentration deepens as well. So just a few words about um, some skillful ways of developing concentration. Basically what we need is a deeply uh, relaxed persistence. <laughs> so the c combining qualities which are not always combined in our lives. So the, 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 uh, the secret for concentration practice is relaxation. And yet we have to continually come back. And so in a, in a sense, we have a kind of what we might call a kind of proactive effort, which is the repetition of the phrases, the coming back. And then we have a more receptive effort, which just lets things be as they are. And so we really need both. We need to, we need to not, so, not so much push or strive for things to happen. And yet we need to keep, keep uh, working with the phrases. Some aspects of this kind of concentration practice which have been helpful for me include sometimes, particularly as we get further into the retreat, it's really sitting back and having a sense of the mystery of this. It's like we put out our effort, but we touch into the mystery. So it can be something maybe to do at the beginning of a session, just to say, I will give myself to the mystery of this to the mystery of this process. That can be helpful to really connect with the, uh, connect with the practice. Um, we need to stay with it. We need to keep that persistence going. Sometimes we need a certain kind of uh, discipline in relationship to repetitive thoughts in this kind of practice. We need sometimes just to almost like say to the puppy that we're training, down. <laughs> okay. Melodrama number 13, enough today, <laughs> right? Or financial discussion, repetition number 47, okay, later, 
You know, that kind of discipline's helpful for this practice, right? Just to sometimes to be able to say that without having being heavy-handed about it. And partly just to keep the practice going and enjoy the moment, really to enjoy the moment as much as we can. This third aspect of how uh, metta practice works, uh, we sometimes call purification. And that really refers to uh, two aspects. The first is a way that we aspire to touch this pure motivation in ourselves. We aspire to touch this goodness or this kindness, again, which is right there at so many times in our lives. And we aspire to touch that more. And as we touch that, we can say that we are touching, in a sense, what is pure. And and the the other aspect of it is, as I was saying earlier, that we also come across what stands in the way of that open heart or what we could say is, is lust pure. And if that language is, doesn't really work for you, the language of purification, you can also simply talk about transformation, talk about how we uh, develop these awakened qualities and we work through our old habits, our, our bad habits in many cases. Or we can call it, if you don't like purification, you can call it marinating. We, we, speak, about, we speak about marinating metta. So we do that practice, and this, it, it can be very mysterious. There can be, we find generally on metta retreats, more than on mindfulness retreats, people have more swings of emotion. I don't want to set you up too much, but... This is, this is my finding. Uh, more swings of emotion, more weird dreams. So don't count on them, but they happen. You know, and you know, I have people sometimes come in the morning and say, last night I was an ax murderer. Does this mean I'm not cut out for meta? <laughs> no whore, you know, all sorts of things happen in, in dreams. And there's an interesting purification process and it's... Uh, you know, we have our, one of the main areas that gets purified is our sense of self-judgment or our, our you know, the, the self-critical voices. Very, very prominent in our society. Very powerful. And we sometimes see that come up and it's not easy to work with. You know, it's not easy to work with. But we have resources here that can actually transform that self-critical voice. You know, there are a lot of beautiful resources. Meta is a powerful practice. I um, teach at times with Heather Sundberg a, a whole retreat called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. I've been working with groups on the judgmental mind for about 10 years. And we have, we have found that if pe- when people are interested in ongoing work to transform judgments of self or of other, I tell them, If you want to start, you need three tools at the beginning. One is mindfulness, to really notice what's going on. The other is metta, or other heart practices. And the third is to really be grounded in your body, and to be able to notice how things manifest in the body. And so we have tools, but the judgment comes up a lot. It comes up in retreats sometimes. It's it's a a few layers below 
Sometimes doesn't always manifest <clears throat> in daily life. We also, in a sense, purify the quality of metta. We'll be talking about this more through the retreat. We notice the kinds of uh, love we might say, or metta, which are less, less mature. We notice what we call in um, Uh, Buddhist practice, uh, the near enemies, or what I've heard from Larry, the near opposites. Qualities that seem like love or seem like metta, but have more of an attitude of uh, grasping or possessiveness. We know what that is like in relationships. What is a genuine love and what is a, a more a needy or a possessive love? And some of that we work out in the practice of, of metta. We try to see that which is that which is more... Uh, more genuine. We see how one of the qualities that makes it hard to access this metta is the distracted mind, and we work with that as well. As we carry out that practice of purification, develop in concentration, learn to lead with our hearts, as that develops, we also increasingly Um, can begin to connect that awakened heart with the mind, with the wisdom, and with the body. And this is a fourth aspect of what happens in meta practice, which is a way that we develop further in what we might call integration of mind and heart and body, which is such an important personal aspect of transformation. It really is about uh, a kind of wholeness in our being. And so we we uh, see the ways that our metta practice increasingly is related to mindfulness practice. We see what Larry pointed out last night that in the very act of attention, when attention is full, there is care and love. I noticed this especially Uh, I think about seven or eight years ago when I did a longer metta retreat. And one of probably what was for me most profound was um, noticing how that wholeness could manifest. Because what what happened, one of of the learnings that happened as the metta got stronger over uh, a number of weeks, the... uh, I began to notice, because the metta was there uh, a lot, I would notice the moments when metta was not there. They would be very, very clear. And I would notice, for example, well, in the dining hall, we're young in the retreat, but you might have noticed, for me, it would be noticing, hmm, that person sure got a lot of food. Many things go on in the dining hall, right? <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, there's not much. It's one of the main places for entertainment. <laughs> Sometimes the Dharma talk is a second. <laughs> but um, I would notice when I would be judgmental or someone would, you know, come in late to the hall or whatever, right? You know, all the ways that we judge, I would notice those things. They'd be very, very clear. And I would find myself saying, oh, I just judge that person. 
I should come back instantly with four metaphrases for that person, you know, and I would do that. And that became a practice, you know, I would, I would, uh, when I noticed my mind off, I wanted to make a correction. And that was interesting, you know, when I was actually not, not uh, being kind, when I was actually more actively being a little mean or judgmental. But what was also really, really interesting was that I also started noticing just when I was making like neutral observations, like that person is walking with a limp and there wasn't any judgment and there wasn't meanness, but there wasn't uh, empathy and there wasn't care. And that felt off as well. Just the cognitive, the ordinary cognitive action without metta felt off in the context of the metta practice. That was, that, that touched me a lot. That really pointed to that, that integration of the metta with the, with the mind as a way, as a way of being. And then it's also really important for the body to come in. And we've been emphasizing that, you know, in the instructions tomorrow morning, I'll bring in the body further. It's really important for the body to be present in metta. The occupational hazard of saying a lot of phrases is that it becomes overly mental. You know, it's, it's, a, it's real dangerous. So we want to find ways to connect the metta more with the juicy hearts and the, the, um, the body. And we can do this in ways that Heather introduced, such as having an image of uh, the person. Larry also did that. And also um, sometimes uh, can actually touch our hearts and keep our hands in our hearts if we practice metta we can let there be that echo or resonance after we say and, and touch in with the body after each phrase. Those helps, uh, help us to connect really with the body. And that's really, really, really crucial. One thing that I found is that metta really to be effective needs to be very embodied. You know, I found, for example, that for myself, I would, um, I would have an open heart, my mind would be pretty clear, but when I wasn't grounded in my body, I could get knocked around by events. I could be sometimes felt, feel pushed or even overwhelmed. And it was really the growing grounding of the mind and the heart in the body, which was really, really crucial you know, in, very, in various ways. I won't talk so much about them now, but that I find that that unification of mind and heart and body is really crucial for metta. And as we as we do that, we increasingly uh, can touch more and more some of what we might call our radiant depths. This is the fifth area I wanted to mention. The Buddha said, the liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon And there's this uh, sense that we can uh, touch that more and more. We live in that way. Beautiful story <clears throat> also from the discourses of the Buddha. He went up to visit some monks who, I think there were six monks, but they only had one name. They took the name of the elder monk whose name was Anuruddha. And they did this because they had been practicing metta so much that they said, we have six bodies, 
but only one mind and heart. And he, uh, the Buddha asked them, you were living together on such friendly terms, harmonious as, as milk and water, regarding one another with the eye of affection. And how did you do this? They said, metta. <laughs> and they, uh, they said they no longer preferred their own happiness to that of the happiness of others. So the last area, and I want to close with this and be, uh, be, be fairly brief, is that as we, as we touch that deeper radiance of our being, as we continue that practice, we naturally start bringing the practice out into the world. We do this in a variety of ways. And I was, I was thinking just of a, uh, I wanted just to give really two examples. One is that uh, I was thinking of a, a dear friend and mentor named Joanna Macy, who many of you know has, has really worked for many, many years to connect this practice with really social transformation. And in her practice, it's really, really crucial to touch that open heart, to touch that radiance. And so as part of the trainings that she gives, for example, for activists, she teaches them essentially how to touch the beautiful. That if you're gonna deal with problems and large problems, you have to touch the beautiful continually. It's also what I found in working with the judgmental mind. Going into the judgmental mind is going sometimes into hard territory. And to do so, we need to continually be uplifted by touching our hearts. I do believe, and I think this is what the lives of people like Gandhi and King show, that when we are in touch deeply with our radiant hearts and know that to be the most basic reality, nothing can really threaten us. Ultimately, nothing can really overwhelm us if we can stay connected with that. No, nothing happening can take us away from the understanding that this is most basic. That this is, our, this is, this is who we are most deeply, no matter what happens. So I wanna just close with um, hearing from two people one of them, Dr. Martin Luther King, and the other one, Buddha. <laughs> so in Dr. King, we have actually his voice. So I wanted to play this. This is him talking about love and talking about the importance of bringing love into the world. Okay, so we'll see if all the technology works. The day whenever valor shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain 
A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. This oft-misunderstood, this oft-misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. And history is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Thornley says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. Lastly, from the Metta Sutta. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding.
thank you, uh, Dr. King. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you, uh, Gautama Buddha. And thank you uh, very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.